Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Chris Gosselin from Fund Monitors, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce this webinar about the market effects of next week's presidential election in the States. Um, I'm joined today, and thank you for their time, um, by three excellent fund managers who have a variety of, and a range of experience in what's happening in the United States or how the United States works. Uh, so we'll start with Robert Swift. Um, Rob, would you just quickly introduce yourself for the benefit of our watchers, listeners? Sure. Thanks, Chris G. Uh, Robert Swift. Um, I am a fund manager, uh, portfolio manager and partner with Delft Partners, uh, an AFSL licensed entity based in Sydney. We're a team, a small team of people who've worked at very large organisations um, over many years. and We've come together to focus on investment management. Our specialities are global equities, Asia-Pacific equities, and we also have a global listed infrastructure strategy. Um, I've been doing this in global investing thing for over 30 years and spent about 15 of those working in Boston in the USA. Thank you, Robert. I'm sure your experience in the US will, uh, will hold us in good stead uh, this afternoon. Uh, Rodney Brott uh, from Melbourne, fresh out of lockdown. Um, welcome. Thank you. Uh, a couple of words, please. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, uh, we have the DS Capital uh, Growth Fund that's based in Melbourne. We've been around for about eight years. It was founded by my business partner, uh, James Davis, and myself. Uh, we focus on uh, small and medium-sized businesses, mostly in Australia. There's an international element to the fund as well. Uh, we do have investments in the UK and the US. Uh, we focus mainly on uh, industrial businesses with track records of cash flow and profitability. And we invest principally on uh, our own behalf, but we have about 200 uh, high net worth individuals uh, that invest alongside us. Thank you, Rodney. Last but not least, Chris Weldon from Magellan. Uh, I don't think Magellan needs any introduction uh, from anyone. It's uh, very well known, been an amazing success story. Chris, can you just tell us a bit about your background? Well, Chris, hi everyone. Uh, Chris Weldon from Magellan. Uh, started with the, uh, the firm back in 2007, uh, been part of the investment team since then, um, an analyst on various sector teams and now co-manage the, uh, the high conviction strategy alongside Hamish Douglas, the, uh, the firm's co-founder and CIO. Thank you, Chris. Um, so look, what we're here to talk about is not so much the outcome of the election, although I don't think we can, um, we can avoid that subject in looking at how it's going to affect the markets. And what we've got, as I see it, is an extraordinary situation where what you would think was clear cut or would be clear cut in a normal situation with someone with a uh, Joe Biden, I think has got a 7.2% lead in the polls, but it's probably um, anyone's guess what the outcome will be, not only about the White House, but also the Senate, which will affect things in the marketplace. Uh, perhaps, Chris, we go in reverse order and uh, you could give us your opinion on what's going to happen possibly uh, next Tuesday, but how that might impact the markets. Yeah, so it's the, the question of the hour, Chris, um, and there's all sorts of various outcomes here. Obviously, there's various permutations of the presidential election and then the Senate election, which is equally important, as you flagged. 
Um, maybe to back up before we get into each of those various outcomes in the White House and the Senate, um, something we've got on our radar, just as a sort of FYI, maybe a cause of short-term volatility, um, is the contested outcome in the White House. If you don't have a pretty clear uh, victory to either the Biden camp or to the Trump camp, and should Trump decide to contest the outcome, as he's made it somewhat clear he intends to do uh, by his speech and behaviour over the last few weeks, um, that might be a source of market instability in the coming weeks, so just something people should have on their radar, not causing us to change anything within the portfolio, but just a source of potential downside and likely temporary downside risk in markets. And then the most important question for a medium to longer term investor, um, Chris, is the outcome of both the, uh, the presidency and the Senate races. Um, we don't know, you know, we're, we're very mindful of what happened in 2016 and a couple of weeks out uh, of the 2016 race, everyone thought Clinton was clearly home. Uh, then of course that all, all changed. And so it would seem like a, a similar situation with Biden today um, if the election was today, it looks like he would um, claim the White House, um, probably with a decent uh, majority. Um, and therefore, we start looking at the Senate races as well. Um, most interesting to us, actually, is what happens in the Senate, because if you have the Senate flip from Republican controlled to Democrat controlled with a Biden White House, then suddenly the Democrats control the White House, the Senate and the House of Congress and can really start pushing through some meaningful legislation um, that could have quite profound changes to society and to the economy within the US and particularly to certain industries and to certain businesses. And at the end of the day, that's what we own on behalf of our clients, uh, our businesses. Um, so we've been paying particular attention to you know, the outcome as it may relate to US healthcare reform or regulation of big tech uh, or the decarbonisation of the US economy, all those sort of things are what's most relevant to us. And so that has meant paying attention to not just the White House outcome, but probably just as importantly, the, the Senate outcomes as well. Thanks, Chris. Rob, perhaps with your experience in the US and having lived there for 15 years and on a more global basis, do you see uh, a, a change uh, of present or, as Chris says, um, control of the Senate and uh, the House and the White House, that that would make a massive change in overall policy. I mean, I know Trump has been saying that if Biden gets in, it's a massive lurch to the left. But do you think it really is a lurch to the left? And will that affect uh, the market dr as dramatically as Trump would like to portray? Right. Uh, let me try and be brief to, to that very, very... Uh, Sorry, it was a long question. Right? No, it's a large question too. <laughs> Look, I, I think that, that Chris is, is correct. I think that the tail risk to the market would lie in the Democrats controlling all three branches of all three aspects of, of government, so the presidency and both, and both houses. And I think if that happens, then you, know, you could argue it's necessary legislation for the reinvestment and the rebuilding of the US economy, but you are going to see quite significant continued government expenditure and probably more regulation, and you're going to see the long end of the yield curve back up, which will have some implications for the pricing of, of risk assets. But I, but I think that um, in answer to your question, can they get through and can they be as revolutionary as they want to be? Possibly not. And there are some nuances in US politics that, that 
prevent the people we fear as investors, they prevent the people we perhaps fear most from being appointed to the Biden administration. So let me give you a brief example. Elizabeth Warren has said, um, along with Bernie Sanders, that she wants to introduce a wealth tax. Um, she's really, um, you know, quite, quite a way in US terms out on the left there. If she were appointed to the Biden administration as the Secretary to the Treasury, which I suppose is giving her the most power on, on the economy, um, the Massachusetts Senate seat that she leaves behind would then be filled by a nominee of the Republican governor in Massachusetts. And he's very unlikely to choose a Democrat to go to the Senate. So Elizabeth Warren leaving the Senate to go to the Biden administration doesn't actually leave the Senate necessarily in strong Democrat hands. So you've got a number of nuances that are going to be worked out between November and January with respect to who has won and what can they do with what they have as a mandate. Um, so, so for us, I think that the election, if it turns out to be Senate Republicans and the White House flips, that is really not going to lead to a lot of change. Style, yes, but substance, no. I think what you're saying there is that's, to me, just more uncertainty. Well, there are more outcomes in this uh, than would normally be there and available on the table. And again, markets hate uncertainty. Mm. Um, so you, you're quite likely to have a period of two or three months of political uncertainty anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, and the market's going to react to that. Yeah, we're going to be, let's say Biden does win this election, we're going to be looking and examining the tea leaves in terms of who he appoints to his administration. Uh, and we're going to be looking at that closely for signals. But as I said, it's not clear that he can universally appoint the big, the big left-wing guns into his administration without jeopardising some aspects of his majorities, potential majorities in the houses. So there's going to be a lot, I think, a lot of things to worry about between November and January. But do you think he actually does want to appoint the, the left-wing guns, as you say, or is he more moderate than perhaps we, uh, or more centre than we give him credit for? I think he is a centrist. I think he's also pragmatic. And I think he's prepared to, you know, run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. You know, Kamala Harris was a choice to please a number of factions. And I think that Elizabeth Warren and, and, and Bernie Sanders have got quite loud voices in this current Democrat party, as indeed have the younger generation, Amelia um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, and then um, Ilan Omar from, from Minnesota. They, they're young, they're female, they're very aggressive, and they're very left-wing. Mm, okay. Rodney, bringing it back to Australia, um, do you see that we're just going to track any uncertainty or volatility? Do, do we automatically follow from that perspective? I mean, we're in a much better situation from a COVID point of view. Can we ride this out I'll look to, if it occurs? Yeah, thanks, Chris. To, look, to a certain extent, the Australian market has, uh, has traditionally followed the, the US market, but I think it's, you know, it, I think it'll do that in the short term, and, I, and it could be even the very short term. We remember what happened last year where the markets were reacting one way and then uh, then Trump gave his speech, or last election, I should say, gave his speech and the market sort of, you know, reversed pretty quickly. I think that the whole theatre of the US election is, you know, to a certain extent, you know, who wins, who loses, uh, you know, it's, it's overrated. I think both under under democratic a Democrat and Republican uh, presidents, the markets have performed not 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 too dissimilar. I think that you know to a certain extent 
the uh, the the Biden win was getting built into markets. I personally don't think that Trump's completely out of it at this stage, and you know I think time will tell. But on the one hand, you're going to have a huge amount of stimulus if Biden wins, and on the other hand, you're going to have a significant amount of stimulus if uh, if Trump wins. Uh, and then back to your question, will Australia follow? Well, Australia is going to be more, uh, I guess, dictated by things like interest rates, uh, our relationship with China, trade deficit, all, all of those sorts of things. But there's no doubt the what happens in the US economy uh, will have uh, reverberations around the world and Australia, to a certain extent, will be impacted by that. Now, the fund that we run, uh, we, 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 we look at the world from the ground up. Uh, the macro picture is, uh, is important to us and we're aware of it. But for us, we go searching for opportunities from the ground up. And there's still, you know, no matter who wins, there's still in this current environment, particularly in relation to the uh, or, or due to the, uh, the COVID emotional uh, buying and selling and, and volatility in the markets, there's still a lot of opportunities to invest in businesses uh, run by you know, very, very successful, intelligent people that have got huge market opportunities. And uh, they're, the, they're the sorts of things that we look for. So whereas I'm interested to see what happens in, uh, in the US election, and it will have some implications. I think it's, you know, I think it's going to be interesting for a while, and then the world and investors will move on to the next thing. And as Rob says, uh, you know, possibly interest rates are going to be uh, uh, the, the next big surprise down the track. How far? Who knows? Thanks, Rodney. So, so what you're saying is that as a relatively concentrated portfolio, it's, it still comes down to picking the right stocks and, and making sure that you're reducing that's, your downside from that perspective. Well, that's the key. The key is uh, building a portfolio of businesses that you understand in sectors that you understand that have a particular uh, trajectory of growth that you expect and then managing those investments by, by keeping an eye on them and equally avoiding the disasters. Now, uh, against, the backdrop, against the backdrop of, a, of a, uh, a particularly bad macroeconomic environment that flows through to, uh, you know, terrible markets, it's very, very hard to, uh, to, to fight that. Uh, but you know, if you you can still in our fund, we can still go to fairly high levels of cash, and we can still we think find opportunities in in tough times as well as in uh, that'll do well in tough times, and they'll do even better in uh, in really good times. Thanks, Johnny. Chris, just turning to you. I mean, the Magellan Fund is very concentrated. You've got a couple of funds. One's super concentrated and one's just very concentrated. I don't know if that's how you like to describe it or not. But, um, but so, and, and you're, you're long only um, with a fairly limited ability to go to cash, are you not? Uh, depending on the, the strategy, I, I think we've got quite a meaningful cash tolerance. The Global Fund, which is the you know, the slightly less concentrated but still concentrated portfolio, that can flex cash to 20% of the portfolio. And the high conviction portfolio, which is the hyper-concentrated sort of 8 to 12 stock best ideas portfolio, 
maybe somewhat similar to what Rodney's hinting at, can flex cash up to 50% in that strategy. So both of those strategies have quite a meaningful ability to increase their cash holdings. And, and is that something, without giving too much, is that, is that something that is on the cards if you saw volatility suddenly increase? Not sort of short-term, episodic, temporary. Well, I mean, we, we don't know where markets are going short-term. Um, we're not too concerned about that. If we saw some sort of um, drawdown event where we were fearful that, you know, we were looking at 20, 30, 40, 50% um, drawdowns to the extent that we could foresee one of those events, um, we, we would think it's appropriate to try and add some protection to the portfolio uh, in advance or in the early stages of that, that event. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, yes, we're focused on protecting our clients' capital. We're also very much focused on delivering good risk-adjusted absolute returns. Sure. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things that we're talking about or the things we seem to be talking about is what happens if Biden gets in or what happens if there's a contested election. But what's the outlook if it's more of the same and Trump remains in the White House and uh, the Republicans still control the Senate? Is it just more of the same? Status, status quo, in, uh, in, in my view, it's, uh, it's, it's more of the same. And then you have to look back and see uh, what Trump achieved in his presidency other than a record number of tweets, but what he achieved economically uh, from an unemployment point of view, uh, what he achieved in, uh, in, in trade negotiations, etc. That would give you an idea of what his second term would look like, albeit you never know how emboldened he might uh, he might feel if he does if he does win. Uh, but if uh, if Biden if Biden wins, uh, obviously we could expect investment in infrastructure, uh, in green energy type projects. Uh, there'll be some tinkering with the with 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 tax, etc. So there'll be a few there'll there'll be a few things that will be that will be different. Uh, but I think it still ultimately will wash out over, over a period of time and then, as the Americans are very good at, get back to business, get back to, to growing and get back to finding the, uh, the next sensational business or, or piece of technology. There are a couple of things, of course, that, that cut across that to a degree, Rodney. One, of course, is COVID, where to, to be... Uh, to be honest, they really haven't handled that terribly well from where we sit uh, in Australia and we've been relatively blessed. I know you're in Victoria, but we've been I think, probably very blessed on that. Uh, so that's still got to play out through the, uh, through the northern winter. And the other thing that I think uh, is worth looking at is America's relationship, with whoever's in the White House, with China. Um, and that's that's been quite fractious, certainly over the last uh, ten months since uh, since COVID broke out. Would anyone like to to uh, have a crack at that one? Go on, Rob. You're oh, always no, going no, for this. Look, I think that that President Trump has initiated the attempt to isolate China, and it's been quite successful. So we're we're now looking at something called the Quad Alliance, which is the idea that the new Japanese Prime Minister, the Prime Minister of India, Australia, and the USA form you know, a four-country alliance to work to contain China within the South China Sea, but also prevent China from buying its way into geopolitical influence through the One Belt and One Road program. And interestingly enough, you know, just last night, one of the big U.S. utility companies, AES, announced a deal with Petro Vietnam 
in Southeast Asia, and that was a place to which the Japanese Prime Minister went first before he went to China. So we, we can sort of begin to see an alliance building, and that is not going to be changed if, if Joe Biden were to take the presidency, because Joe Biden himself has said things like, you know, we need to win the competition for the future against the Chinese. So he's all about preventing Chinese technology theft. He's also called Xi Jinping a thug. So, so we don't think that's going to continue. But, but the USA, in terms of its style of dealing with allies, will probably rejoin the TPP. It'll be a lot more conciliatory and there'll be fewer tweets, which will keep Rodney happy, myself as well. Um, so, so policy won't really change very much in terms of foreign policy. We, we, we don't think, certainly not in Asia. In terms of, of domestic policy, again, Trump and Biden are not a million miles away. One of the geniuses about President Trump is he's really moved, he's moved the agenda onto what he wants to talk about. And so Joe Biden's policy of, you know, favoring US domestic production, favoring US employment, um, giving essentially giving tax preference treatment to American companies that, that, that don't import goods. The, these are all projects and plans that, that, you know, Donald Trump was talking about and has to some extent implemented already in the USA. The difference between the two domestically is going to be the sheer num- amount of regulation and regulation is, is going to explode, we think, in, in a Biden presidency, and there's the Green Initiative, but there's also a number of other initiatives that would be forced onto companies, rightly or wrongly. And, and typically in that environment, smaller companies tend to outperform larger companies because it's the larger companies that get regulated. They're easier to regulate. And then you have the other issue, which is the continued issuance of bonds by a Democrat um, by a Democrat government, and you're going to see the term structure of interest rates rise, which actually will begin to favor cyclical companies over highly rated growth stocks. And so you're going to see a number of shifts in portfolios that we would think um, investors should begin to, to implement. The other one, of course, is infrastructure. And whereas both sides have promised to get infrastructure done, it's probably more likely to come from the Democrat side if they get the seat of power. So there's a number of thematics that one could play in the USA. But I think the good news in Asia is that Asia is going to be increasingly the center of attention for the USA and China is going to be less of a threat regardless who wins. Interesting. So one of the things you mentioned there was infrastructure and infrastructure spending in the US has lagged for for decades. Uh, So what you're saying is that irrespective of who wins, infrastructure spending will be uh, will be on the increase. It, it's, it's kind of happening, and, and I'll, I'll shut up and let the others speak a little bit to this. It, it's happening, but if you were to look at infrastructure spending as a percent of GDP, it's running at about 2.5% of, of GDP, and that compares with China at about 7 or 8%, assuming one can, can trust the figures. But, but in the past, you know, US capital stock investment has been as high as 20% when they were building roads, bridges, hospitals, schools, and that number of two and a half is way below where it needs to be to, to merely renovate the existing capital stock, let alone build cities connectivity for the future. So, so infrastructure spending has been promised by both sides. Don't hold your breath because it's not clear the US is politically you know, functioning. Um, but if there were to be a Democrat, um, you know, a, a Democrat clean sweep, then, then absolutely you could look forward to a lot more infrastructure spending, a lot more catch up spending. And the US, it's anyway happening. You know, the U.S. is already producing more electricity from renewables than it is from coal. But that that passed about a year ago. So it's already happening in the U.S. The Democrats would accelerate it. And it's no bad thing as far as we can tell. Hmm. Okay. 
Chris, uh, do, do you see, and maybe we've covered this before, but do you see massive change in the portfolio uh, or, or your portfolios, or do you just see it as an adjustment? Do you think there's a, a risk or an opportunity that you might significantly change? Or do you think the companies that you're invested in at the moment are the, the companies of the future and therefore irrespective will do well whoever's in the White House? No, Chris, I think it's incumbent on us to do both. Um, and I think we have done a bit of both to the extent we were concerned around the, the sort of democratic trifecta. Um, that could have potentially, um, in a very meaningful way, impacted one of our prior healthcare holdings, uh, a business called HCA Healthcare, which is sort of the largest hospital system up in the, uh, the US and could have been impaired by, you know, a progression around Obamacare with a democratic sweep. Um, so we were a little concerned around that business. Frankly, it also was at a price where it sort of made sense to look at other alternatives, but it was a reason we exited that position. So yes, we will exit where it's appropriate, um, but, you know, this portfolio is constructed for a very long-term shareholder in mind. You know, I genuinely uh, think that what will matter for our portfolio and our client outcomes are things like um, Microsoft's share of the, uh, the cloud market, how large that addressable market is and Microsoft's share of it, its earnings power five and 10 years from now. And let's sort of strip that back uh, further in that 10-year period, we're likely to have Democratic administrations and Republican administrations. We'll have all sorts of economic cycles. We'll probably have a few natural disasters. We may have terrorist events. We might have a cyber attack. All those things are likely to happen um, over a long enough time frame. As both the other uh, uh, panellists have mentioned quite rightly, the idea is to construct a portfolio that can withstand those temporary shocks and still... Um, not with any certainty, but sort of maximise the chances of delivering the outcomes that you're seeking to deliver for the clients. So one of the things you didn't mention there, Chris, was interest rates. Rob's briefly alluded to it. Um, it's not one of the risks that you see going forward. Are we, are we in a low interest rate environment for ever, or if not forever, for the foreseeable future? Yeah, forever is probably a little too absolute uh, for us. Um, you know, our base case... Um, assumes we, uh, in sort of the medium term, revert to much higher um, long-term interest rates than where, let's say, the US 10-year Treasury is at the moment. So um, I would sort of suggest we already have that layer of conservatism built into our, our valuations to the extent that that's right and proves to be the case. Our valuations won't be impaired to it to the extent that we're wrong and we're in this lower for longer rate into perpetuity. Uh, then there's potential upside to our valuations. It, it, it is a risk, but I feel like it was appropriate then that we account for it. Yeah. Of course, one of the things that's liable to derail equity markets is is a surprise increase in interest rates and in those 10-year bonds. And with uh, Rob, we discussed this uh, previously. Uh, there is uh, a, a movement at, at that end of the curve. Do you think that's a, a realistic possibility? Um yeah, and, and this is probably getting a little tangential for the, for this this webinar, and and you know maybe here Chris say that, that if any of the attendees want to talk about this issue separately, happy to do so. Um, but I, I think if you go back to the Jackson Hole speech that Jay Powell meant, uh, made three or four months ago now, 
we think the market misinterpreted that. He said nothing about yield curve control, nothing about controlling the long end of the yield curve. Um, and once that begun to be digested by the markets, the yield curve, the 10-year note has backed up, the 30-year bond has backed up quite considerably, the yield curve steepening. And given the enormous supply of bonds due to COVID, but also the threat of Democrat, continued Democrat spending, you know, we think it is appropriate that the 10-year note starts to become positive in real terms. At the moment, it's yielding about minus 1% in real terms, and that's very unlikely to continue in the long term. So it's not going to necessarily derail equity markets. If anything, it'll signal the end of this crazy QE period. But it, it's going to be a change we have to accept, and, and you know, any valuation model has to look at longer-term higher levels of discount rates for future dividends and earnings as a consequence. And um, a steeper yield curve also typically tends to mean that different kinds of stocks outperform relative to other stocks as well. I just wonder whether the market's factored it in or not. Uh, beginning to. I think yeah. it's beginning to. Mm. Mm. Rodney, any comments from you on that? Or are you sort no, of, I, uh, question of cho yeah, choosing well, stocks to suit? Well, it's uh, interest rates is one of the things that does keep me up at night because of the uh, the impact it has on people's valuation models. Uh, the way that we try and try and deal with that, because obviously it flows through to the multiples that you pay, is we are we are we look at some stocks that are higher could be argued to a higher multiple stocks, but for that we are looking for and and demanding a certain level of growth, which is what we keep an eye on. If if we end up paying the wrong multiple uh, for for a stock, as long as the earnings are continuing to grow, then that that investment, that business will will grow into the multiple, and you may not make as much as you otherwise thought you would when you bought it when interest rates were lower and multiples were higher, but you'll still be able to protect your capital. And that's the way we think about it. We have no particular insight uh, into when interest rates will uh, uh, be back at the levels they were at several years ago. But um, I, I, I agree with Chris and definitely don't say they're going to be lower forever. That That is definitely too absolute. And But we'll continue uh, constructing a portfolio of businesses we think we can buy at a good price for the growth that we expect to get and we'll, we'll monitor that. And in the short term, we're strongly of the view that markets will be knocked around by whatever the news of the day is and share prices will move around on emotion and psychology and fear of missing out and all of those, those common things. And what will determine uh, the success of our investments is more what the fundamentals of those businesses are and how they look in several years' time because the fundamentals are what comes to the, uh, to the top over the long term as opposed to the psychology over the short term. Thanks, Rodney. Um, I've tended to do the asking of the questions. Uh, I don't want to start answering them, but uh, do you guys have any questions amongst yourself or any points that you want to make over and above the areas we've covered? One thought that's on that's on my mind, Chris, uh, comes back to the you know if Trump's re-elected, um, what does the world look like? And I tend to agree with with the comments made. I just the the concern I have is that the tails might be a little fatter with the Trump. Assuming Trump's re-elected, Republicans probably keep the Senate as well. Um, they're unlikely to sort of win back the uh, the House in the midterms. So you've probably got gridlock in terms of domestic policy. I do wonder about Trump, though, given his very hawkish administration, whether 
he looks to forget about the share market and all the, those other sort of barometers of short-term success that have guided him in his first term, knowing his second term, he's not going to worry about re being re-elected, whether he and his administration look to just rewrite history and go after China in some very dramatic way, try and change the sort of social fabric of America. I mean, he's already had some success through the Supreme Court um, channel. It's just, I feel like the tails are a little fatter with a re-elected Trump. Um, he will be somewhat hamstrung through the legislative channel in the US because he's probably unlikely to have Republican control of the House. But in terms of foreign policy, uh, yeah, I'm a little concerned there. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because Trump sort of tends to run his own race, to say to say the least. Um, Robert, you were wanting to say something, or Rodney? No, I, I, I think that's an astute observation. I think that second-term presidents typically focus on foreign policy to leave their global legacy, and that 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 probably is a temptation that that Trump will will fall for. And um, one of the craziest things perhaps he could do to destabilize this region is to formally recognize Taiwan. You know, but it's not it's not beyond the bounds of possibility to, to for that for that to happen. He's already a, a approved the the selling of very high end military hardware to Taiwan, which is something that hasn't been done before. The fear of alarming China. So so there's a there's a number of hand grenades here, metaphorically speaking, he can throw into the region by these sorts of policies that that to some extent we, we all think he might just make up as he has his cornflakes in the morning. Rodney, you were going to say. Yeah, I think. I, look, I think it's. I think it's certainly a, a valid point. But I do go back to uh, uh, to the previous election in 2016, when everyone thought that Trump was a loose cannon and he was going to do all these terrible things. And uh, God forbid you should give him the the nuclear codes, etc. But the last four years has been particularly a peaceful period. Uh, in terms of uh, international conflict and sending troops and losing troops, etc., I think he's been very uh, erratic when it comes to tweeting and, and and his comments. And he goes in and he makes a big uh, a big song and dance, and then tends to uh, and then tends to walk back. Maybe that's the way he did business. Uh, certainly, it certainly. Uh, means that we're, we've got our, our, uh, our hearts in our mouth from time to time. But in reality, he hasn't done anything, you know, completely outrageous that's endangered the world as we know it. Uh, he certainly hasn't handled the COVID situation as well as people expected. But he's taken, on the international stage, he's taken on a, a bully in our region and he's also brought peace to uh, parts of the Middle East uh, that have been searching for it under a variety of different administrations for, for years. I, I do, and I mentioned it earlier, I do wonder what an emboldened uh, Trump would do in his second term, but I still think that he's very focused on his legacy. He's very focused on the, uh, the success of the economy and the stock market as a measure of his uh, abilities and his legacy. So... Maybe I'm uh, talking my own book, but I feel that uh, that it won't be as bad as people predict or worry, I should say. Maybe uh, maybe is a misunderstood genius after all. Uh, that I'm not sure. I'm not a psychologist. I couldn't tell he's you. A he's a stable genius, Chris. I think there's a good point, Rodney. He's, he's you know, there's been no new wars. He's he's stroked uh, you know North Korea successfully, cleverly. He's He's done something in the Middle East for which, you know, had Obama done that, he would have been, you know, up for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, you know, he's done some very, very good stuff. Yeah, I, I agree with those 
certainly is a central case. The only thing to reflect on perhaps as one example was him taking out Soleimani, uh, you know, the very senior Iranian military leader earlier this year, um, which could have escalated quite quickly. You know, Iran retaliated by sending some missiles. They made sure it didn't take out or cause any American casualties. But as a small sort of slippage in an event like that um, can escalate quite quickly. And that, you know, informed by our conversations with, you know, former military experts in the, in the very senior members of senior levels of US government, they viewed that as a very reckless step because it could have escalated so, so quickly into something quite destabilizing. I agree with the central case though. I, I think one of the differences between the candidates, is it not, is that um, Trump basically runs his own race and he tends from what I've seen or heard not to take advice from anybody. In fact, he potentially rejects it. Um, Pence is, is much more conciliatory and, and more of a team player. Now, whether that makes him better or worse, I don't know. You know, maybe having someone strong standing up to China is, is possibly what is needed. Who knows? As Rodney said, you know, he's, he's done something in the Middle East that hasn't been able to be done for uh, what, how many decades? Yeah. yeah, and I think he was also provoked by Iran a number of times before he, he, did, he did what he did. And I think uh, I recall that he was even going to go further at one stage and then pulled out at the last minute. So presumably he uh, either changed his mind or was taking advice from someone that he, uh, that he trusted and, uh, and that it ended, it ended favourably. Yeah, and don't forget, he also recognised Jerusalem as, I think, the capital of Israel, and that that caused mass hysteria. But nothing seems to have resulted as a, you know, as, as a consequence from that. I think that, you know, he said, "Drain the swamp." You know, the status quo is vested in how it's been for the last 25, 30 years, and when someone comes in and kind of throws it all around, you're not going to say, "Great, I've just wasted the last 30 years of my life following the wrong." Um, you know, following the wrong model, following the wrong philosopher. You tend to fight back against the change. Um, and that, that's sort of what I think a little bit of, of what we're seeing. Um, I, I, I happen to think he won't recognise Taiwan. I'm just saying that, that, that if he tweets carelessly, we've suddenly got the situation where Taiwan is, you know, um, emboldened and China's getting extremely worried about its long-term plan to recapture Taiwan, which won't be, won't be very pleasant. It's time to point together, uh, Rob, around draining the swamp with, with, Chris's, with Chris's question. Um, around, you know, Pence and the people he's surrounded by. If you can believe the, the reporting, it sounds like the head of the FBI and the CIA will shortly, and perhaps even the Attorney General will be out of a job should Trump be re-elected. And, and one of the sort of things um, I think worth thinking through is his ability to surround himself with capable people, given, well, first of all, whether he would listen to them anyway, uh, and we can debate that, but there's a very short tenure and a very high turnover of people within the White House. And increasingly, he must be going down the talent stack. Um, so to the extent that you've got government run by sort of tier two and tier three players increasingly, you know, that, that's important. I think that's worth paying attention to. Great. Uh, interesting. Um, we've sort of moved towards the politics and away from the markets, but I think the two are so inevitably uh, connected, it's, uh, it, it's inevitable. Um, maybe if there are no other sort of um, comments or views from you, are there any uh, of our guests um, as an attendees uh, interested in putting up a question? 
Uh, are there any questions you'd like to field? I think it, they go through Damon, our moderator, moderator if you'd like to. Chris, um, there has been one question just asked, um, particularly regarding um, uh, the, the first couple of weeks after uh, and what sort of volatility there might be an expectation of um, with either a Trump or a Biden victory. Who'd, who'd uh, like to take that one on board? Oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take it. Uh, to, to us, it would be of no consequence to our overall portfolio construction and management. Uh, if anything, from time to time, we welcome volatility. Uh, it reminds people that investing in the stock market is not a riskless pursuit, particularly if you've got a short-term view, and it allows uh, people like us the opportunity to transact with, uh, with emotional buyers or sellers. So uh, for us, uh, the next two weeks or four weeks are, are not that relevant. It's the next four years that's, uh, that's more interesting. So if you're an investor and volatility concerns you, just, uh, just learn to live with it and, uh, and don't be too uh, impacted by it in terms of what you're trying to achieve with your investments. Thanks, Rodney. Damon, any other questions? Uh, there has been. Um, uh, so um, how uh, would you uh, position your portfolio for a Biden win versus a Trump win, uh, i.e. accumulating green assets versus oil assets? Who wants to take that one? It's sort of, it's sort of being covered, I think, Damon. Yeah, I, I, let me just say, I think that, that generally the following, the following <coughs> tilts could be done. I, we'd probably say that you should favour small companies over large because more regulation tends to, to, to hurt larger companies. They're more visible. Um, need to think about what, what a steeper yield curve will look like for the style of equities that you own. It, it typically has favoured cyclical companies, more, more value-y kinds of companies in the past anyway. And that actually plays into the other theme is that, that Joe Biden said he's going to actually introduce, you know, special levels of taxation for companies that, you know, import stuff into the USA. And those cyclical companies I just talked about tend to be more domestic revenue companies. So you, you'd probably want to play on the national industrial policy theme that's begun under, under President Trump. And then that means, sec, you know, sector exposures, I think infrastructure utilities are very, very attractive businesses. They're stable. They're much, much higher yielding than government bonds, which have gone from being a risk-free return to a return-free risk. And I think that's going to come at the expense of, of consumption consumer sectors because, of course, personal taxation is going to go up. Um, and so those are the kinds of tilts that one could be making. And then further afield, you're going to see you know, Plan B supply chains come in as, as companies have to disinvest from China. Um, and, and that's going to mean places like Mexico become a lot more interesting. And there's going to be potentially a big shift from the West Coast to the East Coast of the USA as China becomes less important and India more important, which is going to mean the East Coast is going to become more critical geopolitically for India and, and trade and flows. Um, so, so those are some of the thoughts we would have. We, we, we don't do top down. We tend to do a lot more bottom up than we do top down. But those are the kind of tilts I'd be making for a Biden presidency for sure. Thanks, Robert. Um, Damon, unless there are any, other, any more questions, uh, we're coming up to 45 minutes. Um, we're happy to continue. I'm not sure about our, uh, our panellists. Um, 
Any other questions or any other closing comments? Well, thanks very much for the opportunity, Chris. I'm firstly, I'm happy to continue if uh, if everyone else is, but I uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, uh, talk about our strategy. Uh, it's certainly interesting times for for a whole range of uh, reasons, but that's the nature of uh, uh, of this business. There's always new information. Uh, new crises, new opportunities coming out. And it's just a question of trying to uh, separate the noise from the important things and stick to your process, stick to your knitting and find opportunities and, and, and manage them. Thanks, Rodney. Chris, any closing comment from you? Uh, look, kind of endorse exactly what Rodney said in his last response and the response before that. Volatility is not a risk, it's an opportunity. Um, so to an extent, you can find great businesses available more cheaply uh, in two weeks' time or four weeks' time. Um, that's, that, that could be a great opportunity. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Robert, the final word from you. You get the last word. That's very kind of you. I'm not used to that. Um, th thanks. Thanks, Adi. Look, I think that, that via AFM, for, for, for which many thanks for organising this, if, if you know, any of the attendees wish to pursue this, happy to do so online um, or indeed via email. So, so happy to continue this conversation. Sometimes the best questions come an hour, two hours a day or so later. So happy to continue this theme if you want online. Sure. Well, we, will, we have been recording this, so we will uh, we will distribute it. And uh, if you're happy to do so, take uh, inquiries or questions or comments or take the conversation on from here. Uh, gentlemen, can I thank you very much for your time? It's really appreciated. To our attendees, uh, thank you very much indeed. It's terrific to have you. Uh, I hope you found it interesting and we look forward to seeing you again at our next uh, webinar. I'm not sure if they're going to become regular Wednesday webinars or not, but um, we'll, uh, we'll see what the feedback is and look forward to speaking to our panellists again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks everyone. everyone. Thank, Thank you. you.